from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to the Dark Mind Podcast. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer of both short stories and novels that has turned the concept of hell into an art form. She's joining me today to talk about her new collection of short stories entitled All the Pretty Hells You See, as well as her previous and upcoming novels. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Christy Aldrich. Welcome to the show. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining me. I uh, really enjoyed all the pretty hells you see. And uh, there's a few stories that really stood out for me that I'm looking forward to discussing with you. And maybe you can give me some insight into your dark mind. Oh, I'm happy to do that. So the first story that really struck me, uh, no pun intended, was Hell's Bells. <laughs> and... Uh, the story is about a man killing his wife of 50 years, and the reason he kills her is not because of her doing some huge, horrific thing. In fact, the thing she does is incredibly minor. She just does the same sneaky thing nonstop for almost 50 years until one day he snaps and kills her. And the subsequent hell that's created from that event is an exercise in masterful storytelling. So... Which element of the hell that he created do you think is the most disturbing and why? For me personally, it was the actual cowbell ringing constantly because mm -hmm. I felt like that was a sense of his guilt following him around. Like he knew it wasn't anything justified in what he did. And that was kind of the reminder. Yeah. So what was the uh, inspiration for that element? Well, really, before I started even writing horror, after, you know, my introduction to Stephen King, I started looking for other books because I was just drawn to the genre. And I read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe. And we know that Edgar Allan Poe loves his madness. And <laughs> the, I really wanted to do something that I felt was Poe-like, even if I'm definitely nowhere near the scale of Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Oh, well, don't sell yourself short. <laughs> yeah, it's funny when I was reading it, I could picture the cow. And, you know, my mother grew up on a farm, so we used to always visit the farm. And cows have this real deadpan kind of uh, affect to them. But if you didn't know any better, you would almost think they're looking at you with contempt. Yeah. They're sneaky little creatures. Mm -hmm. It's kind of hard to tell what's going on inside that big skull. Mm -hmm. 
So you're out in a rural area, is that correct? I live out in the sticks. <laughs> so you're around some cattle? A lot. When I go running, we run past numerous cows every morning. Okay. Well, I especially love the uh, ending of Hell's Bells, which I won't spoil, but uh, it was amazing how you crafted the ending to make it to where all of the lies he had told worked together in concert to ultimately seal his fate, so to speak. Did the ending evolve as you wrote the story, or did you already have the ending and just had to find your way to it? For me, usually a story kind of starts out with the ending already in my head. So it's kind of getting there. That is usually my job. Mm -hmm. If I don't know the ending, then I usually struggle. Mm -hmm. So how do the endings come to you? Are they like in a a flash of white light or is it just something that kind of floats around in your head for a while and slowly takes shape? I think that it comes from... You know, just living life, being inspired by whatever is kind of around. I think that's usually what happens is I see something and there's like that thought of this is where a character is going to be. Now, how are you getting them there? Mm -hmm. Even before you even know who the character is, what they're doing or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, without giving away any spoilers... I really liked the way you made the scene with his wife in the well seem like there was something supernatural going on, but then you find out something much different in the end. Which do you prefer writing and reading stories that have supernatural elements or stories that stay grounded in the real world? I prefer writing stories that are more realistic because to me, I feel like humans are the biggest monsters out there. But I actually think when I'm watching or reading, I kind of prefer Supernatural, oddly enough, because I feel like that's an escape as to where writing is like cathartic. So it's easy for me to write about human monsters and realistic things. And it's easier for me to enjoy Supernatural things, if that makes sense. No, that makes, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, I never thought about that before. You get lost in the fantasy but you cathartically purge through real life. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's I think that's one of the most profound things I've heard in a while actually. <laughs> so, um, can you give me some examples of maybe some supernatural thrillers, horror stories that you like, you think are a good example of something you can get lost in the fantasy of? Yeah, especially with the indie scene and how it is now with self-publishing. You know, there are so many amazing writers out there that are willing to take it to the next level. So like right off the bat, I can say Judith Sonnet, which I don't think is like a big surprise because people know that we're best friends. Her (laughs) story or novella Chainsaw Hooker, I think is a really good blend of like supernatural and also realistic in a way. But that's a really good one. Um. There's a short story by a British writer named Anthony Crean. He goes by Terra Fiction called Mr. Music Man. I am in love with this story and it's completely supernatural. You don't even know exactly what's going on in that story. It's just creepy and that's like not knowing is what makes it so creepy to me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I had a Judith Sonnet on the show, 
I was interviewing her because I had read, oh, what was the name of that book she had just redone? Oh, it'll come to me. But she had released Chainsaw Hooker that day. And I remember, you know, going from a story that was about like demon possession, kind of like in the tradition of like the exorcist and stuff like that. And then going to Chainsaw Hooker, I hadn't really been exposed to her current work. And I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Judith is amazing. And she's willing to go there. Yeah, that really irritates me that I cannot remember the name of that book. What was? Oh, Cabin Possessions. That's what it was. Yeah. Cabin Possessions, which was one of her first works. And she did a kind of redid it in an author's preferred version. And uh, that was kind of your standard demon possession fair. And then I got into some some serious demon shit with Chainsaw (laughs) Hooker, where she actually got a chainsaw from hell. (laughs) Exactly. So that book reads like one of those you know, cheesy old horror flicks that you kind of see late at night. Mm -hmm. I think that was probably my favorite thing was because that was like made in written form for me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I really need to uh, get into some of her newer stuff. She just puts out stuff so quickly. It's like, I think she's got three or four that, I mean, like within a matter of a few months, I can't keep up. (laughs) Yeah. I told her she's going to burn out. You think so? As much as this girl, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you uh, referred to the story Hell's Bells as your love letter to Edgar Allan Poe because of your, quote, love for the madness in Mad Men. So what is it about the madness in Mad Men that you're drawn to? I probably say maybe a couple things like personal experience, you know. I've dealt with a lot of madmen in my life, so <laughs> it's cool to draw from that. I also feel that I am a madman <laughs> at times, so it's also it falls back into that cathartic thing I think of just drawing from life and experience and you know putting a twist on that also it's really cool to just see someone completely lose their mind and what comes from that mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big fan of psychological horror. So are you a fan of psychological horror? Yes, probably my favorite subgenre. Well, in the next story, I wanted to talk about the story Hell of a Dog. The story is about a man that's visited by the devil himself because he accidentally ran over the devil's dog, which sounds comical. And in the beginning of the story, it is kind of comical. But then horror and mayhem ensue. So you explained in the author notes that when you were trying to come up with a reason that the devil would come up from hell and visit anyone for anything, you thought of love. But who would the devil love? And the answer you came up with was a dog. So in what ways do you think when it comes to friendship, dogs are superior to human beings? Because a dog is their love is just pure to me. like. They don't even care if you're feeding them or if you're taking care of them. They will still love whoever they attach to, which is sad in some ways. But when you say that their love is unconditional, it is unconditional. I feel that way with most animals, actually. But it's kind of easier to write about someone hitting a dog than someone hitting, you know, a cat or a duck or 
something silly. Yeah, it's funny. Um, he's not my favorite comedian in the world, but uh, Bill Burr has a bit he does about him and his wife getting a pit bull. And he wasn't happy about it at first, but uh, then it eventually got to the point where his wife was upset because she felt like he loved the dog more than he loved her. And he was like, well, whenever I come home stumbling drunk at three o'clock in the morning, only one of you is at the door shaking your ass. Happy to see me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my boyfriend's kind of been informed of the same thing. (laughs) I have four cats and one dog and they mean more. He comes in sixth. (laughs) (laughs) Just sixth? Sixth. No, seventh. Mama comes first. Oh, okay. I got you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the the next story that I wanted to talk to you about was the stalking of Jane. And that was a really interesting concept. In the story, a young woman realizes that she's being stalked by a young man that she met in a coffee shop and not only enjoys it, but does things to egg him on and escalate the severity of his behavior. It seemed like Jane had a few things going with regard to being stalked. She got off on it like some sort of exhibitionism, and she liked the control she had over her stalker, but it seemed like she was also in love with him. So which one of those elements was her primary motive, and what was her end goal before she had to react to her stalker's unplanned response? Uh, I think that probably it was that she liked the attention at first, and then the end goal was to become that happy couple. But because of the stalking and where that went, that's kind of an impossible thing. But in Jane's mind, I don't think she'd ever understand that that was impossible because she kind of romanticized, you know, what he was willing to do for her. And so what was it? Stephen, I think the stalker's name was. Yeah. Yeah. What was (laughs) (laughs) what was his, you know, without giving a spoiler, what was his objection to the way she was behaving? I mean, he was acting like I mean, he was a psychopath, basically. He was acting like a psychopath. So what what was the psychology behind his objection to what she was doing? I kind of think that it probably is that thing of when someone wants something really bad and they romanticize the idea of it to the point that it becomes something that can't be realistic. And then when you realize that, oh, this is a fantasy and it's not what I thought it would be, it kind of levels off and it ruins it. And suddenly it's not as enjoyable anymore. So you think, or I would say you're, you wrote it, so you know. Uh, so you're saying that he was more in love with the fantasy, like having her as this unattainable thing that he had to stalk than actually getting what in the fantasy he ultimately wanted. You explained it so much better than I did. <laughs> That's exactly it. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. See, I'm getting better at this. (laughs) So you also said that we might see Jane again. Does that mean that we might see her in a short story or a full length novel? And if so, what kind of story dynamic? Well, I think that's for Jane to decide because she's definitely one of those ideas that kind of 
takes her own way, no matter what I try to do to guide her. But I do think that someday she may get her own full novel and maybe she will have someone else that she's tempted into stalking her. (laughs) So I feel like you're being very suggestive about like, you're not saying this is what's going to happen, but kind of is what's going to happen. Am I reading you right or no? Maybe. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Listeners at home, I tried to coax the information out of her, but it didn't work. My lips are sealed. (laughs) All right. Well, so the next story, which let me let me readjust myself in the seat and get ready for this, because I loved this story. My favorite story in the book is Lust for Life. This story blew my mind and the ending snatched the rug out from underneath me and knocked me on my literal and figurative ass. (laughs) So, uh. Listeners at home, this story alone is worth getting this book. Not to mention all the other great stories, but this one alone. This story deals with the very real-world horror of dementia and Alzheimer's, those diseases where your loved one is still alive, but for all intents and purposes is dead because they don't even know who you are. So what are some other real-world horrors that you want to write about in the future? Well... I have touched on some with like conversations and books that revolve around things like abuse and like sexual abuse. Religious trauma is a big one for me, family type of trauma and stuff. But I also really want to explore more things with like mental illness and playing more on that, but in different ways than like what we've seen. And I also want to explore some of these things that like as a woman that we've been seeing lately with like things on abortion bans and stuff like that. I really want to explore like even pregnancy and horror, but not in a like I'm happy I'm pregnant type of way in a I'm being forced to carry this thing, which it would be a thing, not an actual baby and something I write, (laughs) probably like a demon or something. (laughs) But like, I just really enjoy turning all of these sort of normal, but scary to some people things into a more grotesque and horror like situation. Mm -hmm. And would you say that the draw to that would kind of like be the same thing as like maybe an adrenaline junkie or would that be too simplified like what is the draw to extreme horror especially extreme horror that involves real life horror i'd say adrenaline probably is one of those things i also think it's like a empathy type of thing especially in an extreme situation i feel like it doesn't matter who the character really is especially if an author is really good Your empathy is at its full peak when it's pushed to the extreme like that. So you're saying that the reader's empathy, or are you talking about your empathy? Probably both, we're being honest. Probably both. Okay. So the empathy reaching full peak. So it's kind of like you're, even though you're doing it in a very dark way, you're kind of connecting with what makes us all human? Yeah, I'd say so. I think a lot of people forget 
to connect as human beings nowadays. And I think sometimes those situations can kind of guide us back to that, that at the end of the day, we're all human and you can feel empathy even for bad people that maybe deserve it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny that even when the pandemic first hit, do you remember that movie Pandemic that everybody was watching on Netflix? Everybody flocked to this movie as if, you know, we aren't currently living through one of those at the time. Yeah, I guess that was probably an example of what we've been talking about is just empathy at its peak. Everybody's freaked out. So I guess everybody's trying to connect to everybody else through this movie that everybody's kind of beholden to because nobody could go to their job. What else could you do but sit around and watch streaming movies? That were even close to what you were actually going through. Yeah. Well, so circling back to Lust for Life, without giving away the insane ending, for some reason, and it's just an idea that I got, I could be wrong, but I get the idea that you had a different ending in mind, but at the last minute decided to change it. Am I right? Or? Well, half right, because... Actually, parts of that story were once going to be a novella that had a little bit of a different set of characters and it was going to end in a very different way. So when I decided to just suddenly change it and go with the two characters that are in the story, the ending also came like right at the end. I had to go back and change things to fit to that ending, but that's the ending that it wanted. So that's the ending it got. Yeah. Sounds like when you write these stories, you're almost not even in control of them. Oh, I fully believe that. There are so many that I've written. I've been like, I wouldn't do it this way. And then have to remind myself, yes, you did do it this way. You wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wish I knew what that was like. I guess you're tapping into that deep, dark, creative space where I guess the unconscious mind takes control when you're funneling creativity. Yeah, it's definitely almost like a power struggle because you sit down to write and you have to have some sort of control because otherwise, if you just wait for inspiration, like you're never going to write. But once you finally find that hole in the page, you kind of stop thinking and just start writing And whatever else is in your mind is taking over at that point. But those are really good writing days. Okay, now, this is the first time I've ever heard this phrase before. I have to ask you about it. You said hole in the page. Tell me about that. Uh, I think I first heard, it might have been said differently, but I first heard a similar thing in Misery by Stephen King. But... For me, the hole in the page is literally when you become so engrossed in what you're writing that you forget your writing. And it's kind of when you stop and you look back and you see that you've just written out like the scene that you saw in your head and that you were a part of, but you just wrote it and you don't even realize you wrote it. Mm. It's just a dark hole that you fall into and then eventually come out of. Well, so circling back again to uh, Lust for Life, because like I said, it's my favorite story. Um, (laughs) Where did the inspiration for not only the real life horror of dementia, but the 
dynamic between a younger spouse having to take care of an older spouse with dementia? Like, where did that come from? Well, like I said, the story originally was going to be about a different set of people. And it was going to be about a resentful daughter and her mother. And that was kind of inspired with my own time taking care of my Nana when she got sick, she started developing dementia and the things we went through. A lot of the things that were said in the story are things that she said to us during times. But then when I decided to change that dynamic, I'm currently in a relationship with someone that's a little bit older than me. And even outside of a romantic relationship with people like my mom or other people I love, one of my biggest fears is them not remembering the things that I hold so close. So I think that alone is terrifying to me that you can spend so much time building memories with someone and then it just be wiped away without any rhyme or reason. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a lot of erotic overtones and elements to it. I noticed that like Judith Sonnet, for instance, she veered over into that realm and produced a book called Greta's Fruit Cup, which it's sitting on my shelf and I've got to get to it. I've just got so many TBRs. But have you ever thought about branching out into the erotic genre or anything like that? Well, one of the reasons that Lust for Life ended up in this collection was because my last short story collection at the very end, I included an erotic story. This one was much darker and not your typical erotic read, but it turns out that I'm not too bad at it. Mm -hmm. So when people found out that I was putting out another short story collection, they're like, so are we getting anything like Insatiable? <laughs> well, maybe a little more tame, just a little. <laughs> All right, Insatiable. I'm going to have to read that one. <laughs> oh, Lord. I apologize to my mama again for writing that. <laughs> well, the next story I wanted to talk about was Even the Vines Must Drink. And this was like Little Shop of Horrors on steroids. This is a story about an elderly woman that had a bit of a green thumb and was murdered in the greenhouse in her backyard. The story is told through the point of view of a young boy who notices that there are some vines that are growing in the backyard near the greenhouse that weren't there before the murder. And the most terrifying part of the story for me was the initial slow burn, or I guess slow grow would be a better term, <laughs> of the vines getting bigger. And no matter how hard the young boy tries to get his parents to believe him, they won't. So how do you construct a slow burn storyline? And I just interviewed a screenwriter that wrote a uh, slow burn Southern Gothic. I asked him the same thing. How do you construct a slow burn storyline? Because it seems like it would be very hard to maintain the anxiety of the reader by stretching the narrative out, but not stretching it out so long that you lose the reader's attention. Well, I feel like such a dope because... I love slow burns in movies. I love them in books. So naturally, I just also kind of write them most of the time without realizing I'm writing a slow burn type of story until someone else points it out. <laughs> so I'm not sure if I actually know what I'm doing. I'm just <laughs> writing. I just enjoy 
explaining things, I guess. But I guess it's just, it's kind of like tying a treat to a stick and tying that stick to your dog's leash or collar and dangling it over their head, just getting them to follow that until you decide they can have that treat type of thing. You just dangle just enough to keep people interested. Uh-huh. Yeah. So tell me about your previous novel entitled These Ghosts Bleed. Well, These Ghosts Bleed is about a very bad man named Alan and his wife, Anna. And one day, his wife decides that she's going to commit suicide after finding out that he's been cheating on her. He is, instead of being sad or grieving, he's angry. And he ends up finding out that she was writing books in her free time. As a way to get his revenge, he decides he's going to publish these books under his own name and claim publicity from that. But his wife isn't going to accept that lying down, and he starts getting his just desserts over time, while also going down a spiral of madness. When I started writing that book, I had my own issues with an ex that was kind of abusive in a lot of ways. And I was afraid that he would like steal some of my work, but it was different work at the time, not like horror novels and stuff. And it was kind of that thing of what would I do if somebody decided they were going to put their name on something I wrote, especially what would I do if I was a ghost? I think these ghosts bleed. It's kind of answered that. <laughs> well, was this ex a writer as well? Yes. Oh, okay. Not a very good one. Mm. I can say that now. <laughs> yeah, I can see the temptation then. He might have done that. And I haven't read These Ghosts Bleed, but uh, I can imagine with your imagination what happens. <laughs> so tell me about this story that I see you just finished the first draft on, which is tentatively entitled Inbred. Whew. That one is a lot. I started writing that book last year, actually. And it deals with a lot of different real life type of abuses and traumas and stuff to the point that I actually quit writing it at one point. And I've told everyone that I will never publish this book, but it's actually going to be the next book I publish. So, you know. <laughs> Is that the first time that's happened with all of the stuff you've written? You've had that kind of unease about to the point where you don't even want to publish it? Yes, this one definitely took me into some personal places that I wasn't comfortable with, I think is probably the reason why I've been very uneasy about even publishing it. But at the end of the day, it is a really good idea. And I think that it's going to be one of those that kind of sticks with people that read it long after they finish it. And you feel like it's a good idea because it's going to help you maybe resolve some things? Or what did you mean by that statement? Yeah, I think that it's me deciding to put it out into the world is also going to help me in a lot of ways because of how personal this book ended up being to me. Well, do you prefer writing short stories or novels? I prefer novels. I struggle to write short stories and actually enjoy them. And usually when I finish a short story, 
I think to myself, I could have turned this into a novel. And then there's another voice that says, but don't do it. It's good as it is. Yeah. So it's more of if you write a short story, you felt like you could have turned it into a novel, not that you feel like you're too constrained to fit like all these story elements into a smaller package. Yeah, I'd say so. I've interviewed a couple of authors that have said that they don't feel like they're good at writing short stories because they don't feel like they're able to put everything that they want to in such a a small amount of text. But then I interviewed Mike DeFrench, and that guy is a short story writing maniac. I mean, it's almost like a drug for him. So I guess it just depends on the person. It really does. Some people, they have to explain every detail and they have to put in a bunch of different elements into a story. And then some people are like, no, here's the point. This is what's going to happen. And this is where you're going to end up. And I envy those people. (laughs) Well, I've seen a few book reviews you've done, at least on Instagram. Have you ever thought about getting on Substack and doing a blog or anything like that? I tried a blog once. I couldn't keep up with it. I don't read enough to keep up with something like that, which I hate because I do love reading. But if I ever could get my groove back into reading more than like one book every couple of weeks, I probably would, because I do enjoy also reviewing books. Yeah, I read a few that you did on Instagram, and there's a lot of people that are getting on Substack these days as far as writers are concerned. Some of them are doing book reviews. Some of them are just using it as like a platform to develop a community, keep their readers informed of what's going on. And you can do like a mailing list to keep people abreast of new releases and stuff like that. So, yeah, I was just curious if uh, you were thinking about dipping your toes in that. I might someday in the future. So what is your writing medium Do you use a old school typewriter, a laptop? I type way too fast for a typewriter. I have to use the laptop. (laughs) (laughs) I had a typewriter once that I used. I was like, I'm going to do it old school way. Kept getting my fingers jammed in between the keys. I said, nope, this isn't going to (laughs) work. And do you have like a um, scheduled time that you try to do it or just any free moment you have? Yeah, I try to stick with writing in the morning because for me that's usually my least busiest time and I like to go outside and you know enjoy nature while I write so early mornings are really good especially down in the south because we have the hell's weather down here Mm. yeah if you don't mind me asking where in the south are you I am right on the border of Alabama and Florida, like as low in Alabama as you can get without being in Florida. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm over here in Texas, and uh, I feel your pain. (laughs) You know how the weather (laughs) is, then. Whoo, Lord. Well, who are your writing influences? Well, it's probably most cliche answer. Obviously, Stephen King is kind of what jump-started me into this genre. I'm also a really huge fan of Sandra Brown, but she writes in the like thriller, romantic sort of categories. But I feel like I kind of managed to bring both of their writing elements into a lot of what I do. And I'm also super inspired by all of the other writers that like 
I meet in the self-publishing scene and, you know, the small presses and stuff. So like Judith and Terror Fiction, there's another writer named John Huber that I read his stuff and I think, oh my God, I wish I could write this. And he inspires me to try and push to be an even better writer because I want to match that. And people like Heather Miller or Tony Evans, there's just so much talent that it's easy to be inspired by all of them. Yeah, I understand what you mean when you say you're a fan of Stephen King is one of your influences, that it's kind of cliche because he's so big and so common. But when you think about it, Dean Koontz, he was more of like a thriller type of guy. The first person that really brought really terrifying shit into the mainstream was probably Stephen King. Yeah, King really managed to find a way to bring the scary stuff into a more generalized public. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I've seen that you've done some book covers for Judas Sonnet. Is that something you do regularly along with writing? And if so, how did you get into that craft? Yeah, actually, I started earlier this year. I finally decided to make a page and start posting those. It's under Grim Poppy Designs. And I literally started because I needed book covers and I didn't have the money to pay really good artists to make them. So I said, I have to figure this out on my own. And then it turned out that I was actually not that bad at it. So I said, well, let's help people out the same way that I kind of needed that. Provide a service that isn't going to cost their firstborn and still makes their books look amazing and people want to buy them. So you design your own covers as well? Most of them. I do have a couple that I didn't design, but most of my book covers I end up designing. Where do you get the ideas for your covers from? you get them from dreams or you just kind of abstractly think about the content of the book? Yeah, usually it's really fun because I can come up with ideas for a book without having to write the book. So I can sit there one day and think, huh, wouldn't it be cool if there was a book about, you know, a killer shark that just is following someone around that isn't Jaws? Go, I'll make a cover for that. And how did you learn graphic design? Are you using software? Or are you using like phone apps? Yeah, I use a bunch of different apps and software to create the image that I think it needs to look like. Did you have to watch like YouTube videos and stuff like that? Or is it just something you can kind of play around with and not so much for the actual design concepts for the covers but definitely for the more technical sides like sizing and formatting things like that i watched a lot of youtube to figure it out yeah that's where i get a lot of my audio stuff if it wasn't illegal you could probably learn to make a nuclear weapon on youtube you could so uh what attracted you to writing horror as opposed to other genres? Well, once again, going back to King, I actually wrote a book when I was 14 that was basically a better, in quotation marks, <laughs> version of Twilight to me. It was like a paranormal romance type thing. But I became really obsessed with vampires, and I started picking up any vampire book I could find just wanting to read everything about him. And I came across Salem's Lot and was immediately drawn. 
not only to how he was able to make this book as big as it is and not lose my attention, but also the way he dealt with vampires and horror. And I thought, I need to do this. Like this, I always loved horror. I don't know why I never thought to write it. But now that I've read someone that did write it and did a really good job, I think I can do this. And I kind of started steering that direction. So is that when you first started writing or was that when you first started like seriously writing with the intent to publish? Yeah. When I switched to deciding that I wanted to be part of the horror genre, that's when I decided like I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to publish stuff. This is what I'm going to do. Okay. Well, the first story you ever wrote, what was that about? Well... It depends. If we go with the first novel I ever wrote about, it was a very awful werewolf romance book that was like <laughs> sitting in the drawer. Uh-huh. It's 400 pages worth of angsty teen love and very weird werewolf tropes. But the first story I ever wrote was actually in the third grade when I decided that I was going to turn my summer vacation from school into this big drawn out story. And my teacher didn't realize that I had turned it into a story and wasn't telling the truth. I had a very boring summer. (laughs) So so the werewolf novel is not going to see the light of day because I guarantee you, you could probably sell it. (laughs) No. It is awful. You could write it under a pseudonym, you know. Just... Oh, God, it's awful. That was 14 when I wrote that. <laughs> it is, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, if you could go on a three-month writing retreat and could go anywhere in the world, where would you go? Well, aesthetic me wants to say New Orleans because it's like my favorite place in the entire world. Realistic me has to say some very boring place because I get distracted way too easily. And if I'm on a writing trip, like it needs to be someplace that I just do not care about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You're going somewhere that is interesting and there's all sorts of tourist attractions. There's a, there's gotta be a cabin in the woods somewhere. Yeah. No Wi-Fi. No Wi-Fi. Or cell phone service at all. (laughs) Well, what is your favorite subgenre of horror film? I'm assuming you like horror movies. Oh, yeah. I think you can tell by the stack of movies behind me. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the assumption. <laughs> uh, I think it's probably a mix between psychological and maybe folk horror in a way, because I do really enjoy like witches and monsters in the woods and folklore and stuff like that in my horror. I don't think we see enough of that. What would be some of your favorites? Well, high, high on the list is definitely The Witch. I'm obsessed with The Witch. Mm, Yes. Uh, There was another movie I watched recently that I feel like no one's ever talked about. And now I can't remember what it was called. Bruce Campbell was in it, too, oddly enough, being serious. I think it was like Into the Woods or something. And it was about a school. It was really good. Also, I don't know if it exactly falls into the same. I think it kind of mixes folk and psychological horror. But The Autopsy of Jane Doe, without giving away the ending, that movie to me is like genuinely scary. Yeah, The Witch is, uh, I feel like that's a real sleeper hit. Like it doesn't get the recognition that it deserves. 
Yeah, people either absolutely love it or they hate it too because of how much of a slow burn it is. Mm. Yeah, and I feel like people would probably enjoy it a lot more if they put the subtitles on. Yeah. Because that is some period accurate dialect, and it's very hard to understand if you don't have the subtitles on. Well, that's where I ended up okay because I listen to everything with subtitles. Okay. (laughs) Well, so tell me about that large movie collection that's behind you. It looks like it's pretty much DVDs. Yeah. You have any VHS? No, only DVDs in here. We actually have a pretty big VHS collection, too. This was mostly my mom. She's always been obsessed with collecting movies, and I kind of took that after her. (laughs) (laughs) So are those the majority horror or what's the, the main genre? The right side of me, the entire wall from floor to ceiling, that's all horror movies. The other side of me is kind of more like a general thing. And then I actually have a wall in front of me that's full of like Christmas movies and true crime movies and DVD box sets and all of that. And it's not even all our movies because we also have a huge children's movie collection. <laughs> nice. Well, do you ever go out to see the movies? Every once in a while, yeah. We'll go to the theaters or the drive-in. Oh, God. You know, I am 42 years old, and I have never been to a drive-in. Oh, you definitely have to go. The drive-in's the best, in my opinion. Yeah. So what do you think about the, I would say, decline of the movie-going experience? It seems like everything's going to streaming. Well... As someone that is a self-proclaimed hermit, (laughs) I do like the streaming options because Mm -hmm. I definitely don't like going out in public all that much. But then you watch a movie, you know, at the drive-in or you watch it in the theaters and you get that experience of people around you. And it kind of influences the way the movie can even be remembered, in my opinion. So... Losing that's a little sad, but I don't think it'll ever go completely away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I like to go out and see movies, but like if I do go out and see a movie, it's a matinee. Yes. So what is the life of Christy Aldridge like outside of writing? A lot of naps and a lot of cats. (laughs) (laughs) Naps and cats. Naps and cats. And movies, I guess. I do watch a lot of movies. Well, uh, tell me about the uh, hellhound that I've seen you running with and pictures on your Instagram. Uh, That's my stitch. He's a blue-nosed pit. He doesn't actually enjoy the running. He enjoys the sniffing and the cows that he comes across. (laughs) But he's just a big old baby. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you recently posted a picture of your running shoe that completely exploded on you during one of your runs. <laughs> so how far away from your house were you and did you get some new shoes? I was like about two miles away from the house. Oh, God. I had to basically walk home with my talking shoe because it wanted to flop so much. Oh, my Jesus. Didn't get a new pair of shoes yet, but I am using another old pair that have holes in the top but not the bottom so that works Mm -hmm. yeah i really miss running i have to stick to the uh, lower impact stuff because of a knee injury but especially out in the rural area like you're talking about i used to love to just take off and 
end up God knows where. <laughs> yeah, running really is a better experience solo, I think. You can really just get lost is the whole point, I think. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Christy, it has been a pleasure talking to you. I've had a lot of fun. So as we bring the show to a close, do you have anything you want to plug or let your readers know about? Um, I guess just to get the book we talk the most about, All the Pretty Hells You See. That's my newest release, and it should tide you over up until probably next year when I publish something new. You can buy all my books on Amazon through any of my profiles. The links are there. And if you need a book cover, and Grim Poppy Designs got you on that too, so feel free to get you something. All right. Well, listeners at home, all links will be in the description. And Christy, thank you again for joining me. And thank you for having me. And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Stay healthy, stay sane, and as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.